welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Welcome to episode five of our series on harnessing resilience. I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Up till now, we've been talking to guests who've spoken in detail about how they mustered the resilience to overcome their setbacks and failures. This week, our focus shifts from anecdotes to evidence as we speak to a researcher who offers practical insights and action steps all of us can take to strengthen our ability to rise above when the crucibles come. That researcher is Dr. Craig Dowden, who describes his coaching practice as bridging the gap between what science knows and what leaders do. What science has found, you'll hear him tell us, is that harnessing resilience is a two-part process. First, finding our way back to baseline, that is, where we were before our crucible hit, and second, charting a course to move beyond that point to not merely bounce back, but bounce forward. Well, Craig, thank you so much and uh, love all your work and uh, on resilience. And uh, obviously you've also written a book, uh, Do Good to Lead Well, which we'll have to have you on again to talk about. I love the concept of um, Leaders often believe they can be values-driven or they can be successful by just the whole concept of doing good to lead well. It's you know values driving your leadership, a great concept. But we're here today to talk about resilience. And uh, we live in a pandemic-ridden world where everything's so uncertain. If ever we needed resilience, uh, it's it. And you know, one of the things I'd like to start off with, you have this great phrase in which you say that it, what your definition of resilience is our ability to bounce back, how quickly we take to bounce back to baseline in order to move ahead. Talk about just this concept of moving back to baseline to move ahead and what your definition of resilience and just sort of give us an overview as, as we get into the subject. Well, thanks so much, Warwick and Gary, for inviting me on this on your podcast. And it's such an important topic. And I love the thesis uh, of what you have in terms of well, it's about what happens when we encounter these events and 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 how do we push forward? And I think that's really critical. And appreciate that question because that comes from the decades of research that have been conducted around. So what does resilience look like? What does it mean when we're talking about resilience? And fundamentally across all of the different pieces of research, it's essentially how quickly we bounce back to quote unquote normal, and how do we move event move ahead after we encounter challenging events? So it makes a whole lot of sense because the quicker that I can restabilize and then move forward with purpose, well, then now that by definition represents enhanced resiliency. And the longer that takes, the longer that recovery period, the more challenging it is, well, then the less resilient I am. Because once I get back to that uh, balanced state, now I'm able to uh, step forward with intentionality. And that's such a good point. I love, I think you used the um, image of a of a slinky, which uh, some of us remember from our childhood going down the stairs and just this sort of elasticity, this flexibility. Talk about what does that mean, sort of elasticity, flexibility, in enabling us to get back to baseline as quickly as possible? Absolutely. And I think some invariably when we encounter setbacks, it's really challenging. It's tough. And we can feel it's it, we can get into that negative 
mindset and cycle around that. And yet from the neuroscientific research and elsewhere, we as human beings are far more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. Mm. And we can come back from these pieces. And what's critical is, is to shifting our thinking, shifting our emotional management system, if you will, in terms of reframing things. Daniel Gilbert out of Harvard University talks about how we're far, his research has shown how much more resilient we are. When you ask people to anticipate how they're going to respond when a particular challenge comes up, one of the worst imagined scenarios possible, and they think, oh, I won't be able to do this. When the moment comes, we are extraordinarily resilient. We are able to dig deep and move forward. And I think and, and appreciate your uh, appreciation of the slinky because that's fundamentally it. It continues to move. It can get stretched. And then the critical part is it reforms and moves ahead each, each step. So it's a really great metaphor for us in terms of how we approach our lives and, and, and how we move. I want to jump in for a second and, and emphasize a point so clear in the in the beginning of this discussion because we've done now, gracious, we're in the mid '80s for the number of shows we've done, Craig. And um, one of the things we hear from time to time when we're talking to a guest who's been through a crucible, um, they talk about how it's not about bouncing back because they say it, you know bouncing back means you're just back to where you were. You're saying though something I think somewhat different. It's a both and. You have to bounce back to where you were first. Then part two of the process is bouncing forward from there. Is that a, a, a fair enough layman's understanding of what you're saying? Absolutely. I think it's a great way of looking at it because also one of the, one of the interesting things we talked about at the beginning, right, about being in the midst of a pandemic and one of the key uh, insights from a lot of the thought leaders and researchers that how agile are we? How adaptive are we to those circumstances? And I think what's critical is, is that when, it, again, invariably things aren't always going to go our way or, or turn out as planned. And then when we return to baseline, that's fantastic. And now it's how do I take the insight, the learning, the teachings that that experience has shown to me and now integrate that into the future. So now I'm better equipped to deal with similar challenges or the same challenges. And so, and this is where I find, and, and to me, the research in this space is fascinating around mindset and perspective is around. So now how do we evolve? How do we grow as individuals once we've encountered this particular situation. And I think that's where there's even additional motivation, right? Is that, so now I can expand myself as a human being and my capacity. I mean, what's interesting is we've had, you know, every guest we've had on is almost like a superstar in resilience. I mean, their mindset is unbelievable, you know? Um, I mean, I can think of just a few stories that really illustrate, I think the point you're, you're making about uh, mindset. I can think of somebody that we didn't have on the podcast, Johnny Erickson Tata, who you know has a top-rated uh, Christian podcast or these Christian radio programs certainly did have, and she became a quadriplegic in the '60s in a diving accident in Maryland, funnily enough, where I live most of the year. And it took a while, and you know she, she's been in that wheelchair for got to be fifty plus years, and. You know, she says something that makes no sense. She talks about her wheelchair as a passport to joy. That to me makes no sense. It, I almost, it's almost um, 
obscene to say that. Now, there's there's metal shifts, and then there's crazy metal shifts. That makes no sense. But we've had uh, a, a woman recently, an Australian woman that was injured in a diving accident, became a quadriplegic at 12, has some movement now, and she talks about how she's it, w- it was a gift, you know? There's this sense of some of these folks that obviously nobody wants to go through that kind of physical crucible, uh, but this, you know, used it, they've reframed it in, a, in, a, in a, an unbelievable way to help them move forward. So talk about this, not everybody's going to talk about that. I'm not suggesting that's a good thing, you know, but it seems like reframing and seeing value in what you've gone through and being able to use it to help others. There's something about that that really helps you not just come back, but spring forward a whole heck of a lot, long way. Does that make sense from your perspective? Absolutely makes sense. And I think what's crucial around that, it's also, and this is where sometimes it can, as you say, you know, just seem completely out of bounds to frame it that way. And I think sometimes that can, again, that uh, that profound search for, okay, like, look how great this is. It's not meant to minimize the experience. And I think that's the other right. piece about it, right? Because it's not, because it is challenging. It can be extraordinarily traumatic and it's essential. And, and decades of psychological research highlight that as well. It's essential for us to acknowledge our emotions and accept them, mm-hmm. not try to move past them too quickly. Right. And then I think once we've gone through that, then the power is, and you make such an important point work, which is around, okay, so now what do I do? How do I move forward? What are, the, just like the pandemic, really interesting. Mm-hmm. I facilitate CEO forums and leadership forums. And one of the powerful questions that we've reflected on and talked about is that, okay, what are some of the insights? What are some of the benefits of this experience through the pandemic? So people talking about, I spent more time with my kids, or now I'm much more uh, reflective about how much time I'm going to spend in airports and what kinds of meetings do I need mm-hmm. to go to versus not. And so it doesn't mean that the pandemic has been joyful and wonderful, yet at the same time, there are things from it that, hey, it's shifted my perspective. And I love that you talk about that mindset shift. And as another quick example, remember speaking to the CEO uh, on one of my uh, webinar series of the Canadian Venture Capital and Private Equity Association here in Canada, and she talked about she reports to a board of 40 members. (laughs) And people were saying- But yeah, exactly. Oh boy, who was like six or eight is challenging enough. Right. Like now you have 40. And she had such a powerful insight where she said, well, you know what? What I do is I choose to look at them as 40 really smart, highly accomplished people who are looking out for my best interests and the best interests of my organization. And now rather than fear the exchanges or try to avoid it, what she does is look to facilitate relationships. And I think, again, the same situation can be viewed very, very differently. And, and, and so looking at what can we control, what do we move forward, what do we learn through this experience? And again, decades of research has shown us that we are incredibly meaning-making creatures. As human beings, that's something that defines us. And I love, again, the, the core thesis around moving ahead with purpose that you talk about. That is at the at our core as 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 people, and so now finding ways to be able to do that successfully once again doesn't minimize the experience. It it enhances it and it brings us forward in a different way. It's so true, and really, you know, we've had maybe 70, 80 guests on the podcast, and this is, I guess, qualitative, not quantitative research, but qualitatively, every single guest 
who has bounced back, whether it's a physical tragedy or a business failure or victims of abuse, every variety, you know, we've had different, you know, genders, race, nationalities. Uh, they've all sought to s- seek meaning in their crucible and they've all bounced forward, if you will, by looking at it in terms of how can I use what I've been through to help others, whether it's other victims of abuse, other people of physical challenges, other people have had a business failure. Every one of them, they've not held grudges, you know, because that can pull you down. You know, it's as we often say on Crucible Leadership, you know, lack of forgiving other people puts you in uh, in prison. It's almost like drinking poison. It's not good for you, irrespective of how bad and how wrong other people may have been to you in that incident. But just this concept of, you know, using what you've been through to serve others, to serve a, a bigger purpose from your perspective in the, does that show up in the research too as being one of the factors in resilience and bouncing back? Absolutely, and in, and and uh, in a parallel line of research around accomplishing goals. So, in other psychological motivational research, they find the bigger than self goals. Yes. Once we look at serving a purpose bigger than ourselves, outside of our own self interest, and we all have self interest to some sure. extent. That's absolutely natural and and wonderful. And then it's now, how am I contributing to my broader community? How can, and I love the point that you're making, because now what I can do is elevate the meaning that I extract from that challenging experience, because now not only can I grow and extend as a a human being and, and test the limits of my potential, I can also support others in their pursuits. And I can let them know and give them a little bit, you know, red flag, some warnings in advance, hey, this tripped me up. And you see that, I mean, mentorship, that's a lot around what that is, right? Taking my lived experience and supporting others so that they can not encounter some of the challenges that I did or adopt different strategies. And the more we can reframe that, look at it in that lens. And I think the power within that as well is that it's more balanced. It's a more mm-hmm. balanced perspective on things that, yeah, this is, and I love Gary, you said earlier too, an and idea. This right. has been incredibly challenging. And I can learn forward from it and move ahead as as a more developed individual. I've expanded my toolkit as a result of this experience. Yeah, I mean that's so well said. I guess in my uh, in my own way, as listeners would know, growing up in a 150 year old family business in Australia and did the two billion plus takeover, which made a lot of mistakes. I was fresh out of Harvard Business School, you know, young, foolish, naive, and idealistic. Within three years, the company went under. Yeah, that was painful. It took most of the 90s were painful years. Look what I did. I hurt other family members. You know, I'm a person of faith and felt like, gosh, maybe God had a plan and I blew that, which poor theology, but didn't matter. It was still painful. Uh, lost a lot of money, which wasn't so important to me, but just that sense of loss of self-esteem, self-belief. But eventually I clawed my way back and focused on serving others and hence with my book coming out, this fall, using my pain for a purpose to use that oft-used aphorism. It's somewhat similar now. You know, is there still a scar? Of course there is. Do I have regrets? Sure. But yet, when I'm somehow using what I went through to help others, it does make meaning out of it, and it does bring a sense of fulfillment and joy. And so, yeah, I mean, it's somewhat similar, but you're right. It's not like it wasn't painful. It's not like it didn't take years to bounce back. It's not like, oh, you know, if you read this book and have the right mindset, you can get over this in five easy lessons or your money back, you know? 
in 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 six weeks, right? Lose a hundred, you know, lose fifty pounds in uh, in four weeks, guaranteed. I mean, it's not that's not what you're, you're, we or you are saying about resilience. It's not easy, and it can take it can take. In my case, it took years to fully bounce back. You know, and that's the great thing I think that we can't emphasize enough here on the show, and that is there is no statute of limitations on your crucible, on coming back from your crucible. And Warwick, I love that you just described your story. I was sitting here hoping you were going to do it, thinking, <laughs> am I going to have to jump in and play interviewer and ask Warwick this question? Because your story, as you just expressed it, is what Craig's been talking about, that one-two punch, that getting back to baseline, deep breath, and then moving beyond that to that, what you call a life of significance. So we've never looked at it. I don't know. I've never looked at your story in that context before, but it, it fits perfectly for your story. And while you guys are talking, I'm sitting here going, uh, and that was this guest story and that guest story and that guest story. <laughs> so clearly the, the the science proves this to be true, right, Craig? Absolutely. And I think what's really powerful as well, and, and this is critical, is that the way in which we approach our lives, that's, as you say, work, it's decades, right? We can, these are habits and ingrained frames that we have. And then to move beyond those, I love that you say it, right? It's not a, oh, we'll follow these five steps. And in a week, this will, this is constant level of awareness. And one of the other things that I think is so powerful, resilience is a muscle. So like every leadership is a muscle. Uh, and in order for us to grow that muscle, we have to practice it. So if we, you know, if I want to improve my stamina, I got to jump on the treadmill. I got to go for walks. I got to go for jogs. If I want to build lean muscle mass, I got to go in and do the reps. And that resiliency requires intentional practice, dedicated practice, every day looking for opportunities for how can we be more resilient? How can we test ourselves? And that's really crucial. That is one of the key ways in which we can continue to grow and expand. And it doesn't, it you know, and opportunities, and here's where I think is so powerful, because you've talked about how the common thread amongst all the guests is, well, look what they've done. Encountered this extraordinary setback, this unbelievable challenge. And then what they've done is figured out a way, okay, so how do I move forward? And they're looking at what are, and we're in the same space for you. You know, what do I take from that? And now how do I move forward within it? So I'm not stuck in the past or I'm not stuck where, where I was. Now I'm moving ahead with a very different perspective. And that, as you said earlier, one of the other, you know, blessed with that, or that was a passport to me to have a different frame on things. And I think that is what's really key. All of us are going to go through challenging situations. And now the critical choice we all must face is that, okay, what do I do with that? What do I now do that I'm in when I have this crucible moment? And then what's really back to the resilience research that now I have a choice about how I'm going to respond. And it doesn't take away from the process of, 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 of mourning, of grief, of frustration, of anger. It's just that now once I move through that, what do I do? Where do I go from here? Absolutely. And I want to get to something else you said, but before I do, one of the things you said, I think I, I love your metaphor of like exercise. It's like a muscle. It's not a one and done thing. Oh, I got over that crucible. I'm good to go. Life keeps hitting at you. Life, 
You know, it's funny, we had a former prime minister back in the 70s who, in a moment of madness before an election, said life wasn't meant to be easy, which, you know, that's political suicide for a prime minister or president running for re-election. <laughs> but, but he did. He might have even been re-elected. I don't know. But uh, wow, uh, crazy, crazy talk. But um, life isn't easy. Uh, but, you know, it is like, like, I think of this example as Gary would know, I don't know, it was a month or two ago. Um, you know, I've largely, you know, gotten over, if you will, air quotes, which for the listeners is better I can. Uh, but, you know, the book's coming out, and I guess there's a free chapter available online. And some Australian journalist, gossip columnist, uh, picked it up and read it and just read a really snarky uh, col- you know, column. And it was like, you know, Warwick will give you his advice uh, in his book for a price. It's like, who sells their book for nothing? I mean, come on. And then it's like, well, you know, Warwick will tell you how to bounce back from failure. Well, he's an expert in that, isn't he? It's like one <laughs> after another snarky comment. Was was I bulletproof? No. Did that hurt my feelings? Yes. No, I got over it. I don't know if it took me a few days or whatever. It wasn't immediate, but it's like stuff's going to come at you. And unless you're a machine and no human being is, at least not with current technology anyway, we're all flesh and blood, you know, it's going to hurt. But the question is, do you wallow there for, this wasn't worth wallowing for weeks, but, you know, you're going to get hit with something, it's going to hurt your feelings, it's going to take you off the rails. Well, do you have, have you built enough resilience, muscle and friends, like in this case, Gary, who can say, hey, boy, this hurt my feelings. And, you know, that's part of the muscle is, I think you talk about this, the internal and the external but you know, talk a bit about it's not one and done, and you got to build that muscle so that when stuff comes at you, you know what to do because your feelings are going to get hurt, your self-esteem is going to be under assault from time to time, and right. I mean, you write a paper, and let's say ninety-nine people love that peer-reviewed paper, and there's one loon out there somewhere that says, you know, what Craig Dowd and you know, it's stupid, it's idiotic. Well, you might know who that person is, and the, the guy doesn't have a clue. But it's still going to hurt your feelings, even though 99 people said it was brilliant because you're human, right? So many amazing things there that you're touching on, Warwick. Uh, number one thing I, I want to share, uh, back to the science, right? There was a paper done, I think it was about 20 years ago on the annual review of psychology. And the title was, Bad is Stronger Than Good. Mm-hmm. They reviewed about <laughs> five decades of research. We as human beings have a strong negativity bias. So this is why we tend to react more strongly to negative news, right, and stories. And when negative events happen, it's much more challenging for us to recuperate from them when they occur, which is why, once again, that mindset, that perspective, that shift, that dedicated focus. So it's just absolutely natural that's going to happen. Um, and I and I think to your point, it, it's funny, you know, sharing your story. I remember I wrote an article for the Financial Post, first article on national paper here in Canada was online. I was super excited. I was talking about positive leadership, and there were many helpful comments. And then one person said, "Wow, no wonder this guy is shilling positive psychology. I wonder what pays his bills, right?" And I was like, "Whoa, that hurt!" <laughs> and that was the yeah. first. And that was the first comment on my column. And then. It's in, and, and once again, going back to the to the science, to the practice of, okay, yeah, I acknowledge that. That did hurt, and it did challenge. And then it was, and accepted. Uh, the reason that I felt this is that I care about the column, and I wanted to add value. And then when I sat back, and after, you know, took some time to have that sting and go to people say, wow, that was hard. 
then recognize, okay, my message is not going to connect with everyone and not, and people are going to have different perspectives and that's okay. And then, so, you know, and now I can have uh, different conversations as a result. And so that process of, and I think this is really key and, and you touched on it as well, Warwick and Gary, is that like, it's that awareness. So once things happen, fully acknowledge that they're happening and not to run away, not to avoid. And because basically, and this is what I think is so powerful, our emotions are designed, they are the best early warning signal we have. They are absolutely, and, and one of the things that I talk about with my clients is around, it's almost like taking a Sherlock Holmesian approach to emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whatever is being triggered in whatever experience we're feeling, our emotions are the most valuable data points we have. And unfortunately, sometimes what we do is then if we feel we're being irrational, we then judge the emotion and try to not feel it anymore, which is not an effective way to, to go mm. about it based on the psychological research. What we want to do is exhibit curiosity and say, okay, I totally get I'm feeling irrational about it. 99 people said this was awesome. What's going on with that one person? And now if I can get closer to, and let's link it back to, again, the thesis around the beyond the purposeful, right? Purpose. So, okay. What's the purpose? What's, what's driving my reaction? Now what it does is two things. Number one, I can make a stronger linkage because as meaning making creatures, this is important. And now in the future, I can equip myself when someone else has an equally unhelpful thing to say, or even nastier, I can go, okay, I can return back to that, reframe it, and then move forward myself. So I think that kind of, and and what's interesting, emotions can be really, we can see them as messy and mucky and unreliable and all these kinds of things, which is, that's what's beautiful about being human. And now when we sit back and look at them with curiosity, it's such a powerful uh, perspective in terms of building our resiliency. Yeah, I mean, what you just said, Craig is so profound. I want the listeners to really reflect on that. Just the idea of getting in touch with your emotions and a bit like Sherlock Holmes, as you say, solve the puzzle, solve the case. I mean, again, anecdotally, I'm a very reflective person and analytical and certainly in the last X amount of years, if I'm feeling bad, I have to know why. I have to know why. And often for me, I've been blessed to be married to my wife, uh, a little over 30 years and you know our spouses partners good friends family members they know us people who you trust obviously and i say but i'm feeling down i'm just not sure why and after we talk it through i know once i know why then i can do then i can do something about it. i mean it can be as simple as i mean we have kids from like 30 down to 23 and you know a few years ago let's say hypothetically you know you some of it's not that hard to figure out but your oldest goes to college most parents or many will start feeling a little down oh you know my kids were at home they're not home anymore well you still have that relationship but it's going to change so there's certain times in life and it's okay to feel that sometimes it won't be as easy to diagnose but but you know some people when they feel bad they stuff it down so talk about why, you know, from a research perspective, how stuffing it is not the way to go. And and, and just the value of, of solving the puzzle, solving the case, understanding what those data points mean and why that's so effective in building resilience. Well, and, it, and it's so it's it's so powerful. Right? Like, let's use a parallel track. 
um, because I think this is so compelling. It's like medical research. What's one of the things they tell you, right? Early warning signals, go get it checked out. <laughs> right. Early, early intervention right. is key. Let's go to another area of psychological research, conflict and conflict management. What's one of the top recommendations? Attach, attach you know, get to it early. When something surfaces, you know, if you and I, Warwick, or uh, right. Gary and I are having a challenge, well, it's better for us to talk about it early on because otherwise, what happens? Does it go away? No, it doesn't. And what does it do? Festers. And ah, that was the exact word I was thinking of. Yeah. Festers. Good. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting is, right? And then once we don't explore it, what's happening with our mindset? Then we're drawing a stronger conclusion around it. What is happening? Now, every time that things are going, now I've got a stronger and stronger frame. So the critical piece for us is just to sit there and say, okay, what are our emotions trying to tell us? We need to figure that out earlier. And then because if we avoid, what do we do? We procrastinate. We can engage in maladaptive coping, like binge drinking or binge watching, all kinds of things, which once again, in the moment may prolong or you know extend the time we're going to take before we address it, but it's not addressing that core issue. So it's essential to acknowledge it. And sometimes we're so uncomfortable with our emotions, we try to push them away. It's a natural part of being human. So acknowledge it. And then to your point, and here's what's really interesting, right? Uh, just to build on the example, okay, my, my, you know, my young or my oldest is going to university, going to college. Okay, yeah, I'm feeling that. So I acknowledge that emotion. And this comes from the science of emotions management, right? So acknowledgement is the first step. The second step is acceptance. You know why I'm feeling this emotion? Because I care. I care about, you know, my child is going to university, going off, our relationship is going to shift and adjust and, and all those kinds of things. And then I can be mourning the loss of what was and then what's to be. And now afterwards, so that's the first two steps. And then the third one is commit. The energy that I have now from that emotion, I acknowledged it, I accept it. I have activation energy. That's what emotions also provide us. Now I get to choose what to do with that. So if I am, you know, if I'm thinking about, well, my child going off to university or what, I can sit down and say, hey, how are we going to stay in touch? Like what would work? Da, 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 da. So once again, investing that into uh, a purposeful activity that addresses what's at its core, as opposed to ruminating or procrastinating or trying to avoid it, pretending they're not going to go off. And then what happens? How many times have you heard people say, oh, well, I wish I had that conversation or I wish I had done something earlier. So once again, we have this energy. It's part of our natural biological and genetic disposition. Well, let's choose to use it wisely. Hearing you both talk about the dangers of avoidance of our emotions. I'm just going to throw this out here and this is dangerous because I'm doing it in front of a, a PhD who can tell me I'm wrong. But it, it, it strikes me that is it in some universe true that avoidance is the opposite of resilience or, or in some ways blocks resilience? It's, a, it's an inhibitor of resilience. So if you don't, if you're avoiding something, you can't by definition be resilient. Is that close to uh, fair? I think it's a wonderful linkage. I absolutely agree. And because if, you know, looking at the thesis that resilience is a skill, right, that we can grow. Well, if we're avoiding something, we're not, it's just like being afraid to go to the gym or jump on the treadmill and, oh, I don't want to raise the, 
the speed of my treadmill because you know what's going to happen if it breaks or I fall off or what well, are we going to enhance our cardiovascular health? Well, we're right. only going to stay at that level. So what's essential is we have to put these things in practice. So I love the linkage you're making because yeah. if we avoid it, we're not doing anything about it. So we're missing an opportunity to be resilient. We're missing an opportunity to explore how could we be resilient? And this is the other piece because it diversifies our thinking, right? Because there's a lot of different ways in which to approach a particular situation. And the most critical to me, because this, I think this is another really important point. If we avoid because we feel like we have no other choice but to avoid, that can be incredibly psychologically damaging. Mm -hmm. If I'm avoiding engaging in a difficult conversation with my boss because I've made an intentional decision that the consequences of moving forward now are going to negatively impact me, that's entirely different. And we may say, hey, the same, the same choice was made. Yes, one was made with intention. One was made with more right. purpose, again, linking it back, right? Because I can say, you know what? For me, I'm a single income earner for my family, and now we have a more this and that and the other. Okay, I'm in an unfortunate situation. I'm going to choose not to engage on this particular topic. Once again, that's resilience building because I'm making a choice. I'm not avoiding. I'm, right. I'm acknowledging and I'm accepting it, and now I'm choosing to stay, and here are the reasons I'm going to do that. That is, once again, so it can seem almost counterintuitive. You, you can build resilience even if the choice is, well, I'm not going to take action right now. Yeah, I mean, it's so profound what you're saying about intentionality and what you're saying, Gary, about you know avoidance and resilience being the opposite of resilience. Yeah, I mean, use another analogy. It's like you know gardening. You, know, you want to get the weeds early before they grow and overwhelm the garden. And you know, in my own way, I try to do that but it's it's just so important um i mean for, there's so many elements that are tied together it's like forgiveness and if you if you're bitter against somebody that grows and it's certainly certainly want to help you be resilient you know and sometimes you have family members or friends that i like to call you know the gift that keeps on giving it's like you know i've just forgiven you for that can you can what can you stop because i'm having trouble catching up you know Sometimes we're quote unquote blessed with those people. You can't, especially if they're family, there's nothing you can do. You know, you just got to deal with it. But, you know, you just have to, again, forgiveness, as we've talked about, it's not so much for other people, it's, it's for your own mental health. It's just whether it's forgiveness, fear, uh, loss of self esteem, whatever the issue is, it's holding you back. The sooner that you deal with it, identify and come up with an action plan, whether it's to talk to somebody or not talk to somebody, have an intentional plan that is the way it seems to both mental health and resilience and, uh, you know, the the passive stuff at not deal with stuff and letting anger, conflict, loss of self-esteem grow. I mean, that's, that's not going to, you know, you don't want to be endlessly visiting the psychiatrist or psychologist not because it's good to receive help, but if you're not doing anything and you're making things worse, no professional wants to see somebody endlessly because they're making their life worse. You know, the, the goal is to heal the patient, not to have a patient that never leaves, you know, because they won't deal with stuff. Well, and I couldn't agree more with what you said. And, and I want to build on this is this is awesome because I love that you talked about forgiveness. And then what I'll, uh, well, I'll, I'll play with that and, and, and build on it and say self-forgiveness is also Amen. extraordinarily important. And then, and, and, you know, the psychological research, self-compassion, 
So how do we, again, forgive our, because we're all human beings. Guess what? I've made, you know, countless numbers of mistakes today, and that's all right. And now the critical part is, okay, so what happens? I encounter a setback. How forgiving of I of myself? And this is what's really interesting, too, about that research. And again, at work, I'm so glad you talked about forgiving others, because that's powerful. And that's a really important linkage mm-hmm. for our own resilience, our own mental health. And what's really interesting about the research around self-compassion is, is that we tend to be, the average person tends to be better at forgiving others than they are forgiving themselves. We tend to give other people far more leeway than we do ourselves. And that counteracts our resilience. That's another core finding in the research. Mm. The less self-compassionate we are, the less resilient we are, because what we're doing is holding ourselves up to an incredible standard that we never expect someone else to uh, hold up to, to, to meet. And so this is really important. It's, it's essential for us. Again, when we look at this in our relationships, it's relationships with others for sure. And then it's also the relationship we have with ourselves. Well, un- un- unfortunately, profoundly, you are right. And I am unfortunately a very good example to justify your thesis. Um, as Gary and listeners would know, with the whole takeover I, you know, the the most of it was my fault. So in the 90s, most of the pain was, how can I have been such an idiot? I have an undergrad degree from Oxford. I worked on Wall Street. I have an MBA from Harvard Business School. I'm meant to be somewhat intelligent. How could I do that? Okay, I was 26. But then over time, I cut myself a bit of slack. But it took years to get over with. I hurt so many people, you know, or hurt myself, family members. How could I have been so dumb? How could it have been so dumb? How could it have been so dumb? It's like an endless negative mantra. And eventually, you know, through faith, prayer, friends and and family and some work I could do and not mess up, I was able to bounce back. But my my gosh, for many people, forgiving yourself, gosh, that's hard. And you cannot move forward until it doesn't mean that you don't, you know, if you've wronged other people, yes, there's accountability and restitution, but you've got to find a way to be able to forgive yourself. So, yeah. and, and we've seen that so often. Listeners, go back in your mind to some of the previous guests we've had on this show. Warwick asks many of many guests who've gone through crucibles that they played a role in or they feel they've played a role in, who've had physical uh, traumas, who've had financial uh, traumas, who've had relational traumas. Warwick will ask at some point, you know, did you blame yourself for that? And many of them will say, yeah, but, and then they'll talk about the but is the important part. They'll talk about how they got past that. Initially, they were like that. They blamed themselves like you, Warwick. They were like, oh, it was my fault. It was my fault. It was my fault. And they can't get unstuck off that. It's almost like a record that's stuck. And for listeners who are too young to know what records are, um, uh, uh, Google it. Um, but but it's, like a, it's like a record that skips. And, and what we're saying here, what I'm hearing you saying, Craig, is – we've got to push the needle forward. We've got to get beyond that. And when that happens, that's when resilience can kick in. We can, our resilience muscle is no longer atrophying, but it's being strengthened. And then that's where we move forward to the, that second stage that you talked about, which is beyond baseline going into something new and better. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting in work, you mentioned it yourself, right? That accountability piece. Mm-hmm. And, and I love, and I'll link it back, Gary, to what you opened with again. I love that you did the connector, right? It's an and. 
people can look at self-compassion as like, oh, well, I don't want to, you know, absolve myself of that accountability. And that's not, so self-compassion is the balance. It's, Mm -hmm. hey, I did, I did something and I did something quite unfortunate. I did something catastrophic or I was a part of something Mm -hmm. that was really challenging. And then it's like, and then there are the, the other side of the equation as well. So, and it's, and it's bringing that balanced perspective. And one of the best things, you know, one of the best uh, insights from that research, they'll say, okay, if so for your listeners who are maybe struggling with self-compassion, one of the best pieces of evidence-informed insight that has come out of that work is that ask yourself, if you're in a space where you're just constantly, that self-critical voice is going on ultra blast, ask yourself, what advice would I give to a friend who came to me in the same situation? If they shared exactly a loved one, a family member, a friend, they presented to me what they were, what I'm going through right now, what would I say to them? Would I sound as harsh and be as negative and ruthless in my dialogue? And then if I wouldn't be, so then what makes me, you know, what makes it okay for me to say this to myself if I wouldn't say it to someone else? One of the questions I'm curious about is you deal with a lot of CEOs. You obviously coach them in how to help their organizations and their teams have more resilience. I know you've got uh, you know, several things you say, you know, like, uh, what talents do you have? What do you need? I mean, what are some of those key things that, that, that leaders of any organization can help their teams be more resilient? Well, I, I love that question. And, uh, uh, well, I'll start with, um, there was fantastic work out of the Center for Creative Leadership, and they separated mm-hmm. the difference between pressure and stress. Mm-hmm. And so they define pressure as the extent of the demands that our external environment places on us. They mm-hmm. define stress as our internal ability, our, our belief in our internal ability to deal with those demands. This mm-hmm. is so powerful because this exemplifies why two people can go through the same situation and mm-hmm. have entirely different stress responses. So for the mm-hmm. leaders I work with, the CEOs that I work with, I will talk to them about, and this is borne out in the resilience research as well, taking a resource-based approach mm-hmm. and, and customizing it to every individual employee. So, hey, Craig, you know, how are things going? So checking in. There's lots of data mm-hmm. that shows. Just checking in and saying, how's everything going today, Gary? How are you doing, Warwick? And then here are the really critical things. What do you need from me as a leader? What do you need from the organization? In what areas are you finding things are going well? Like you don't need additional support. Being curious, being empathetic, exploring things from a resource perspective, extraordinarily powerful in, in building resilience in our team members and resilience in our organizations. Yeah, and that brings up an excellent point about resilience in general. It's come up a couple of times in this series. And we tend to believe if we're just doing a drive-by thought about resilience, we think it's all within, right? We say things like, like, you know, suck it up or power through or, you know, you'll figure it out, right? We, we say those things like all we have to do is dig deeper within. But we've discovered, and I hear you talking about it now, Craig, in the science, we've discovered in talking to guests, it's not just digging deeper within, it's reaching out wider uh, without externally, to the resources that are out there. So there are resources within and there are resources without. Those two things have to come together for resilience to be robust, right? Well, I couldn't even have asked you for a better... Because <laughs> 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 one of the, the most scientifically supported resilience building exercise 
uh, really builds on that, takes that framework. So here's, so again, a, an exercise for your listeners today. So do you want to build resilience? Here's a great way to do it based on the science. So the first step they'll say is think of a challenging situation you've faced in the last six weeks, six months, doesn't matter what, where you thought that it was impossible. I'm never going to make it through this. And then you made it through. Then you ask yourself three critical questions. First question, what strengths did I draw upon? That's really cool because you start to think about and, and Gary, I'm going to build on right that internal side. That's yep. an internal resource that you have, my strengths. So great. And how did I leverage them? And this is really interesting because now, hey, this can give me some insight about how I want to apply them right now. Then the second question you ask is that what resources did I draw upon? So this represents the external community, friends, family, colleagues. Did I taste, take a course, read a book? attend a webinar, you know, listen to a podcast, mm. right? All of those things are resources. And then the third question is, what did I learn about myself? So what's so great about these three steps, the first question gets us focused internally. What do I have that I bring to the table right now? How does what I have apply to this current situation? Or what other strengths do I have that are better suited in this situation that I'm facing? Same thing with the resource side. What resources did I draw upon? Do they apply in this situation now that I'm facing today? If they don't, what process did I go through to identify the most appropriate resources? And then the last step, which I think is so important as well, what did I learn? I learned that I can overcome a situation that I felt was impossible. And I did it through applying my strengths and drawing and leaning into my community. So if I did it then and I thought it was impossible, why can't I do it now? And I just love that three-step process because what it does is re it reminds us we move through life so quickly we can forget about that our profound successes, how resilient we have been. We have our own data to support it. I love that balance between the internal and the external because one of the things about advice is they're going to be more objective. Maybe it's a slight nuance on this. Talk about how by getting advice, it helps you get some objective information and acknowledge that in some areas of our life, we are not going to be objective and our brains are just not going to, just not going to be able to think straight. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and, and, and you, um, and you captured it quite, quite well around. So everybody around us is going to have a different line of sight on us and, and they're not going to have the same emotional, potentially not the same emotional connectivity that we will have around the different challenges that we're facing. And then the more we can lean into that support network, right, and ask for their advice, ask them, what would you do in this situation? And this is also really, really important. And this comes back to building our resilience muscle once again. And I remember speaking to Doug Stone, uh, who wrote the bestseller, Difficult Conversations out of Harvard, right? And we were chatting and he said, just because people provide you with feedback doesn't mean that you have to do anything about it. Right. So we're empowered to, and then what you can do is crowdsource lots of different perspectives, lots of different uh, insights. And then we choose the path that authentically connects with who we are. And that's what's so powerful. Once again, once we back to mindset shift, right, which is, hey, these people are all here trying to give me some insight, some guidance that I can apply to move me ahead in something that's important to me. So why shouldn't I, what's going to prevent me from hearing it? And it is so, so important. And, and one other piece, because I love you talked about the support, Warwick. 
Uh, my dissertation on entrepreneurs looked at over 100 entrepreneurs, the top predictor of entrepreneurial success and over 100 entrepreneurs that I studied was level of emotional support received by the people around. Wow. It wasn't about any, it wasn't a business idea. It wasn't about all, all these right. other things. Yeah, there were smaller, you know, weaker predictors. None of that meant what was crucial was around, did they get support from the people that they cared about most? Were they there to offer a caring ear, some insight, some advice? And I think, you know, again, entrepreneurship, we can feel like, oh, well, you know, we're going it alone. It's all around. No, no one does. No one is an island. So don't forego the extraordinary strength that we can get from the people around us, as well as the extraordinary insight. So the emotional support, as well as the information, the perspective they can provide, absolutely invaluable. It is sometimes difficult in my uh, co-hosting role to know when I jump in and say, that sound you heard was the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt signs and it's getting time where we're going to have to land the plane. The reason why that's normally hard is because you have to judge when you think a conversation is kind of coming to its natural conclusion. And what I love about what makes it a little easier for me here is that we've we've been sort of gathered around different facets of it, but this idea of the elasticity, uh, the the two axes on which we we find resilience, internal and external, dig deep, reach wide. Um, we've talked great other examples about it, but we've we've kind of stayed in that zip code for a while. So it seems like a good time to uh, to say the captain's. Uh, getting ready to bring the plane on the ground. Not quite there yet, but before we uh, let Warwick ask you, uh, you know, the last question or two, Craig, I would be remiss in my role if I did not ask uh, you to tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and your services online. Well, thank you. Uh, so you can go to craigdowden.com and there, my Forbes talk is there. Lots of articles that I've written for different publications are available that you can access. You can also uh, sign up for my newsletter as well. Um, and there's an assessment online if you want to take it and uh, and happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, always love. I have extraordinary passion around the science and practice of positive leadership and resilient leadership. So love opportunities like this to talk about uh, this essential uh, topic and uh, and and to join because we're all part of the same community. And I think that's so thank you for uh, for for asking, Gary. Sure. Warwick, put the wheels on the ground. Ask Craig the last couple of questions here. Well, thanks so much, Craig. I love all your uh, wisdom on resilience. I wanted to ask about the FEAR acronym, but before we do, just one last beat on what you shared. Because uh, some people, when they hear that, well, I'm going to get all this advice and, gee, what do I do with that? I think if you're a leader or really a human, you know, trust your gut, your informed gut. Okay. So when you get, wise advice, you will know what to take and what not to take. You will know, trust that and don't, don't fear advice. You'll know what to discount. And then once you've got informed advice and you're in a relatively level, peaceful place, not in panic mode, trust your ability to make it the right decision. Otherwise, the reverse is that way lies madness. I mean, how can you, if you don't trust yourself ever, then, you know, that's not healthy. But anyway, uh, but let's, just for this last question, I love this fear acronym, false evidence appearing real. Talk about why that's such a valuable concept, this fear acronym, as, as we conclude. 
Yeah, Nolan, thank you. I, I love the acronym. I share it all the time. And I think what's really, we all have fears. They're the, once again, they're there for a reason. And I mentioned Daniel Gilbert out of Harvard earlier and his work, and he talked about anticipatory anxiety is an area of focus. And that mm. our fears, so what can happen is, is that we fear our fears right now and get all kind of derailed around them. And then in the future, we go through the exact same process again. And what's really powerful about the research, and they've done this in a variety of different domains, one study in particular, they looked at, so what percentage of our fears actually come to fruition? And I could ask you what you think that percentage is. <laughs> and it's actually less than 10%. Wow. That's amazing. And then here's what's even more. So ready for the mic drop on this one. Over almost a third of cases, people say it turned out way better than they could have ever imagined. So not only did it not come to pass, which is kind of baseline, in almost a third of cases, it was way better. And it was like it was a gift to them, only in, again, less than 10 percent. And I think this is really powerful when it comes to, OK, how do we build resilience remembering that acronym, false evidence appearing real. So I'll talk, and so I'll say, okay, great. You have a fear, don't judge it, acknowledge it, write it down. If you've got one, if you've got 10, don't judge the number of fears you have. And then what you do is systematically walk through each fear and say, what evidence do I have supporting that fear? And then the, I know what's gonna happen is not legitimate evidence. You wouldn't go to a court and say, well, I know, okay, tell me what that is. And then what's really powerful, again, from taking that approach is that now we can take a more balanced view of what's happening. And we can look at the evidence in the light of day and then say, hmm, yeah, now is this just me anticipating worst case scenario, which, as we talked about earlier, is a natural human thing to do? Or is this something legitimate? And if so, now what actions do I take based on my evidence? What do I do to prepare for that? What's the worst case scenario? Okay, so what are going to be my fallback strategies if this comes to friction? So very, very powerful way of reminding ourselves what fears actually are. The great thing about this discussion on fear here at the tail end, and yes, the captain has put the plane down on the tarmac, um, but why I love that discussion at the end of this conversation about harnessing resilience is that Everything that you just described about fear is a roadblock to resilience. If you're caught in fear at any of those points, if you're trapped in those kinds of things, fear can block us from pursuing resilience. To use your words, Craig, can block us from exercising, can keep us out of the gym, keep us from exercising that resilience muscle. Speaking of exercising your resilience muscle, listeners, um, we hope you have had a chance to do that over the last five weeks that we've had the series Harnessing Resilience going on. We will now turn next week to the sixth episode of this series. And that is where Warwick and I are going to talk about everything we've learned from all of our guests all five of our guests now that we've had, we're gonna pull out the key learnings, the key insights and action steps that you can take to, as you move on beyond your crucible, harness resilience on your own.